Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From high atop one Ulster Valley, first time in a while, this is The Pod Couple. I'm J.D. Mullane, columnist for the Bucks County Courier Times. And I'm Phil John Ficaro, columnist for The Intelligencer. Our guest today is Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican representing the 1st District here in Bucks County. Brian, welcome. Thanks, J.D. Thanks, Phil. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of news from D.C. that uh, is directly affecting and impacting the people of the 1st District, uh, so it's a good time to chat. Uh, so let me get to the first big one, Congressman, uh, the cost of living, uh, energy prices and big government spending, uh, huge. And, uh, if you have an SUV or a pickup truck, uh, it costs you about 80 bucks to fill it up when it's on the fumes a year ago, it was about 20 or $25 cheaper, depending on where you got your gas. So, you know, Brian, uh, have you heard from constituents about this problem, and uh, what do you attribute it to? I've absolutely heard it, and uh, it's pretty obvious to every single person that buys any good or service, uh, particularly at the grocery store. That's really where I think everybody's feeling it the most. Uh, what do I attribute it to? I attribute it to uh, overheating of the economy. Um, Larry Summers, who uh, was President Obama's economic advisor, uh, so he brings credibility to the table with you know Democrats for sure. Uh, has been pleading with my Democrat colleagues uh, to be very cautious about any additional uh, spending programs that are not paid for, um, that are going to result in tax increases, that are going to further saturate the market. Because what you've seen, JD, is between the stimulus checks and the tax credits that were upfronted and and sent directly to people's accounts. Uh, the extension of unemployment insurance benefits, um, coupled with uh, the the COVID issue receding, at least uh, at the time, uh, and everybody going back out, and yet there was not the labor force to support it. And anybody who's going to a restaurant who's or who's trying to get an Uber knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and you have deficit spending on top of that. It leads to an over uh, overheating of the economy. And this is Summer saying this, not me, um, which leads to uh, all the ingredients are there for inflation. And there's a number of ways that uh, taxation can occur that don't necessarily involve raising rates in the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, inflation is a tax on every single American who buys any product or good or service, uh, and people are feeling that now. So inflation is a tax on everybody, um, and we are seeing the, the effects of inflation right now. But to answer your question, JD, how we got here, uh, irresp irresponsible spending, uh, irresponsible policies that create a supply and demand issue in the economy uh, where you don't have the labor force to, to handle the, the demand that occurs at restaurants and theme parks and, you know, vacation resorts and wherever it may be. Um, and that's what is a little bit, a lot, I should say, disconcerting to uh, those of us that are in the, in the centrist block in Congress that are trying to stave off this now $3.5 spending bill that uh, some of my colleagues on the left are trying to advance. 
Phil, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, what do you attribute this inflation to? I attribute it to uh, President Biden kneecapping <clears throat> the energy sector of the economy. Uh, we have uh, he uh, uh, took away our ability to drill for natural gas and oil on federal lands, and that sent the price of oil up. But also this huge infrastructure bill apparently has a pilot program for per mile national tax for all of us uh, eventually and that's just going to make you know heating air conditioning uh, you know uh, driving your car or your pickup truck or your suv more expensive over time do, do you think that maybe uh the administration has gone overboard with all this extra spending and these policies which which are spiking everything up you know, I, I just think it's too early to tell what the long-term impact of, of this spending is going to be. Um, but, you know, you had mentioned, um, you know, the gas prices at the pump going up. And, I mean, the, the president's gas, the president's policies aren't behind these. these <clears throat> his prices are up because of a rapid, unexpected bounce back in demand, right? Um, no one was driving the cars last summer. Everybody was home. There was nowhere to go. Everything was closed. Demand wasn't there. Gas prices were low. Now people are back out. Gas prices are up. And I'm sure that Brian, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure that Brian knows that um, you know, the presidents have little to do with the fluctuation of gas prices. Um, you know, they just can't flip a switch and tell and and all of a sudden gas prices are down 50 cents. That's not how it works. It didn't work. That's not how it worked when President Trump was was in office. And it's not how it works now. Um, you know, I saw that. Um, that Mr. McCarthy had comparisons to a year ago with, with respective to gas prices. And, you know, he was very misleading. The, the, the prices didn't fall at the time because of whatever policies the Donald Trump had. Um, they plunged because of the coronavirus, forcing people to abandon offices and there just wasn't anywhere to go. So no one was driving. Yeah, Phil, I think you might be, um, I would take issue with that because just yesterday the White House was saying uh, they're trying to get OPEC to pump more oil. You know, those countries that hate us, you know, the ones who build the IEDs and kill our guys over there, uh, pump more oil. So, uh, you know, OPEC should pump more oil so we, uh, we have cheaper prices at the pump. So I think a, a president does uh, have... Uh, you know, uh, some ability to control those prices. And of course, this is all done in the name of climate change. You know, we're all going to be paying uh, national gas tax probably before the Biden administration is over, uh, assuming that's two terms. So there you go. Brian, what do you think? I mean, you know, uh, you've heard, I've heard this before, but I, I believe a, a president's policies uh, do affect the economy. They affect, because the, the economy is the psychology of the people with the money deciding what they're going to do and how they're going to spend their money. What do you think? I mean, he has a lot to do with this, doesn't he? Yeah, well, the, the prices of anything, particularly oil, uh, are always a combination of factors. And it comes down to, you know, supply and demand, macro, microeconomics. Um, you know, we're starting to hear OPEC. It's interesting, J.D. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about OPEC in, years, in, in recent years because we were largely uh, energy independent and self-sufficient. Um, and I am all about green energy. I'm a big supporter of green energy, not only because it's cleaner and better for our environment, but it's also a huge job creator. It's the fastest sector of growth in our economy in recent years. So you can have a win-win. You don't have to 
make this mutually exclusive choice of protecting our environment and growing our economy. We've seen that. Uh, but as far as the president's policies impacting it, well, of course it does. That doesn't mean that it's an entirely uh, to blame for it, but it's a contributing factor. Um, when presidents, uh, you know, just like legislation uh, impacts the, the cost of goods and the price of services, um, when executive orders are issued uh, that change anything in the uh, energy sector, the market's going to react. Um, now, Keystone uh, XL Pipeline is a perfect example. JD, I'm a huge environmentalist, but I think it begs the question that if we shut down a pipeline, how is that energy going to be uh, uh, transitioned? You know, the, the, the tar sands in Alberta, Canada are still going to be mined and the energy is going to come south. If not a pipeline, then what's the best way to transport it? Yeah. Um, by rail, by truck. I mean, the pipeline, which to my understanding had zero energy emissions, I'm sorry, uh, zero uh, environmental emissions uh, when it was tested. Uh, and if, if that's incorrect, somebody correct me on that, but that's at least what was reported to our committee. Um, what safer way to transport it? So I think that we can all um, support a transition to green, clean energy, which I fully support, but we have to have a bridge to get there. And the question is, what, the, what is that bridge and what's that consensus solution? Um, so I think it's a, you know, the cost of energy certainly is impacted by decisions we make in D.C., both in the legislative and executive branch. Yeah. Phil, you want to add anything to that? Counter the congressman? No, I, you know, I think we just we just look at it differently. Um, as I said, the, the, I, I just keep going back to gas because that's everybody talks about that price of gas. And, and it, it, the president, as Brian said, the president has some ability, <clears throat> doesn't have a lot of ability to regulate. And it has nothing to do with party. It, it wasn't the case under under President Trump. And it, it's not the case now. Well, on behalf of uh, middle-class Levittowners and people like that everywhere, help. We need help. We need lower <laughs> gas prices. We need cheaper energy prices. And, and I get point, the whole climate change thing. but uh, To the point, I mean, certainly the, the administration's policies have an impact. But um, to Phil's point, you know, gas prices historically spike in the summer, uh, which has little to nothing to do with any policy change, right? Um, so there's a lot, again, the, the prices of Goods and services are a complicated combination of a lot of factors, including the futures market, including anticipation of, of you know, what other countries are doing, right? I mean, if there's war in the Middle East, um, you know, that affects the, the cost of oil. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Um, I, you know, I think that's pretty obvious from the, the fluctuations we've seen. I wanted to turn to another big issue that, that uh, consumes uh, public conversation, and that's COVID. Um, and there are two issues uh, regarding mandates, <clears throat> vaccines and masks. Uh, Dr. Fauci, who uh, has become the face of the federal government's response to the coronavirus crisis, is now promoting vaccine mandates for teachers at the local level. I expect he will expand that uh, to the rest of us. Uh, Dr. Fauci has a habit of changing his mind on things. He's one side one month, the next month he's completely changed his mind, I suppose, as the science evolves. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, Brian, uh, where do you stand on the feds promoting or pressuring uh, school districts, local governments, companies, corporations uh, to uh, get us vaccinated and to, to put us back into masks uh, in certain situations. 
Yeah, well, it's got to be driven by the science. And I know that's become a complicated thing recently, unfortunately. But as far as the schools, J.D., I'm a big believer in, in local control of schools and those decisions being made at the individual school district level. I don't think there should be any top-down um, uh, edicts being issued uh, from D.C. Um, now, as far as vaccines, you know, myself and uh, Commissioner Diane Marsegla uh, put out a bipartisan public service message, as did um, uh, Jeannie Giralamo and Bob Harvey, to send that bipartisan message that, um, you know, we believe that, that as many people as possible should get vaccinated, that it's an um, important thing to do. Now, you know, compulsory vaccines, I think that sets a very dangerous precedent. I don't believe in that. Um, but I think that we should be encouraging as many people as possible to get it, um, knowing that, you know, there's some people that are just not going to be comfortable with it. Um, and, you know, what seems fair to me, J.D., is, uh, you know, the choice between a vaccine or a mask, um, that if you're vaccinated, you shouldn't be forced to wear a mask. But if you're not vaccinated, uh, do you have a responsibility and obligation to wear one uh, until we get through this crisis? I think that's a fair uh, approach to take. I think it's a reasonable approach to take. What I don't think is a good idea, J.D. and Phil, is when we're encouraging people to get vaccinated and then after they're vaccinated, um, we're telling them they still have to wear a mask. Um, I think that sends a mixed signal. I think if we want to incentivize people to get vaccinated, which I am certainly doing, uh, along with Commissioner Marseglia and my other colleagues, um, we should be able to uh, allow people to act as if they are vaccinated, right? Um, so I think that's really where it comes down. But keep in mind this vaccine, even though I'm, I'm you know, a proponent of people getting it, um, to force it upon people when it's not fully even cleared through the FDA is another area of concern. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough issue that our community and our country have to grapple with for sure. But I think that to encourage it is a good thing, to compel it and force it upon people, I think sets a dangerous precedent. Phil, I was wondering, you've written columns about this, so I'm wondering where you stand on this. Do you think mandated vaccines for people who don't want to get them uh, should be uh, what the federal government, uh, you know, decides it, it, it should, you know, if, if a policy should be set in place to force people to get vaccinated? Uh, would you agree with that kind of mandate, Phil? I, guess I, agree. I, I would think that a an employer who employs a bunch of people and they're all mixing together in rooms and floors has every right to mandate vaccinations for his employees. Um, you know, if people don't want to get vaccinated and they're working from home, well, that's fine. But it's not a it's not a singular issue. You know, people say it's, you know, my personal freedom. Well, well, it's not. This virus spreads like wildfire to, uh, when people aren't vaccinated. Um, what I wanted to ask Brian was in regard to masking, um, what, what is the big deal you think? And a lot of that comes from your side of the aisle. And I don't mean in Congress, I mean just politically. Um, that people have a tough time putting this mask that almost waves nothing on their face. Is it is it just you can't tell me what to do kind of mindset or how do you see it? Well, you'd have to ask those people. I mean, I've you know complied, um, you know, certainly on the House floor. I know you've seen a lot of our, our colleagues um, have sort of objected to that. I'm, I'm a law and order guy, Phil, just like I believe in law and order at the border just like I believe in law and order in our cities. Um, you know, I believe in following rules. And if you disagree with the rule that's made, then try to change the rule. But to flagrantly violate things, um, you know, you're not a law and order type person. You gotta be intellectually consistent across the board on these things. Um, but I mean, e even in terms of just, you know, 
Joan and John Main Street just walking into a store. Right. Feel, I don't want to put this mask on. It's, yeah. it's almost like someone's asking them to like lug a 50 pound weight everywhere they go. Yeah. The mask weighs nothing. You put it in your pocket, you put it on, you buy your stuff at the store and then you take it off. Yeah. I don't understand the big problem with it. Well, you'd have to ask people that are objecting to wearing it um, why they why they object. I'm sure you'll get a host of. Well, yeah, of- I, I I can. I mean, I think the answer is obvious, Phil. I mean, uh, the president said that if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer have to wear a mask indoor <laughs> indoors or outdoors. And then that changed when the Delta variant came along, the uh, the variant of the virus that has uh, come to us from India, and so. You know, uh, I think there's some whiplash. You know, I was in um, Wawa, right? One of the five Wawas I go to in Lower Bucks County, and three of them uh, had taken down the plexiglass uh, between the customer and the cashier. So I asked a young woman, you know, uh, about the plexiglass coming down and were people complying with the mask mandate, which uh, Wawa posts on its doors. And she told me something interesting. She said, nobody's complying with this mask mandate. Uh, In fact, we're having a hard time keeping those signs up on our doors. People keep ripping them off. So I really think there's some fatigue uh, with it. And uh, so there's your answer. Uh, We we are getting a muddled and mixed message from these public health experts, Dr. Fauci among them, certainly the president has fallen prey to this. I know he listens to advisors, but his advisors apparently are confused on the issue too. Do we wear masks? Don't we wear masks? You know, uh, I I, I probably, all three of us probably agree, it is puzzling why someone wouldn't get uh, the vaccine. It, uh, given the 620,000 deaths in this country, and particularly if you're in that age group, you know, you're over 60, you have uh, what they call comorbidities, other health issues that are serious, uh, get the vaccine. It's very effective. I understand that it hasn't been proved by the FDA. Um, so, you know, when that happens, will we see a crush of people going to get it? I hope so, because uh, the sooner uh, this goes, uh, becomes negligible, the 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 more we can get back to our normal way of life. So to answer your question, a long way around, Phil, that's why, you know, it's messaging from the top. And people people don't believe it. The credibility is shredded. The the data is clear when we talk about the vaccines. There have been 340 million doses of vaccines delivered in this country into arms. And three people have died with symptoms related to that vaccine. So I don't, you know, I'm not a math major, but that, that seems like it's almost nothing. Um, right. why, do you, and- why, why do you think there's so much hesitancy given those numbers? Um, is that for me? You, you either one. Okay. Why yeah. is there hesitancy? I, I can't explain it except that people don't want to be pushed around. And I think that it's it becomes a matter of pride and stubbornness. I am sure there are people with religious and medical reasons for that. But honestly, I don't understand why people don't get the vaccine. I thought, you know, most of us have a family physician. You know, you called a guy. Now, I had COVID and I called my doctor and I said, you know, uh, do I need to get the vaccine because I have the antibodies? And he said, well, the latest research shows that the antibodies only last uh, three, six, nine months. So you should get it. And I did. I took my doctor's advice. He's been taking care of me for 25 years. I trust him. It, it, it puzzles me as to see people just like me in the middle class 
you know, fighting the vaccine is if you know, Bill Gates is going to secretly putting microchips in or, or some crazy QAnon nonsense like that. Right. I mean, it, it, I can't figure it out. Congressman, you have any ideas on this? You got your you got your uh, finger on the pulse of the district. What do you hear? What, why do people say they don't want to get the vaccine? I mean, it's one of the reasons I've heard from some people is, um, you know, it's it was it was created so quickly that they they just have hesitancy about, you know, it's long term possible unknown manifestations, you know, and, you know, people are entitled to their opinion, you know, and I don't judge anybody for how they feel about it. All I can tell you is how I feel and what I recommend to people uh, and why one of the reasons why me and Diane wanted to put that video out so that they could show a Republican and a Democrat, you know, who are local elected officials here in Bucks. Sure. Um, that are encouraging people to do it. We both got our vaccine. Uh, I, you know, strongly urge my parents and my parents both got the vaccine. Right. Um, some of my siblings have, some of them haven't. Um, you know, that's a that's a choice they're making. Um, but as far as me giving a recommendation as a public official, I'm urging everybody to get it. Can we draw a parallel between the MMR vaccine that's mandated for children to come into school and employers, you know, uh, government workers being mandated to get vaccines or they can't come in the front door. I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't until 1998 when the MMR was mandated for, for, for students. Uh, right. So we've been there, what, 20 to 23 years. And, you know, there's not, there hasn't been this, this outbreak of some serious disease from or, or, or reaction from this, from this uh, vaccine. And I just wonder, is, is there a parallel to be drawn between these two where this is fine, I've got to get my child vaccine, but I'm not getting a vaccine? Well, Phil, I, I can tell you, uh, you know, when 1998, you said MMR, uh, uh, <coughs> uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, right. right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't recall anyone, uh, and certainly my wife and I didn't object uh, to those vaccines for our three children when they were small. Right. Um, but the difference between 1998 and 2021, I think, is that uh, really everything has become so politicized. Uh, everything. You know, remember, it was uh, Kamala Harris saying she wasn't really going to trust a vaccine that, uh, you know, was uh, ushered onto the market while Donald Trump was president. Do you remember that? I mean, I do. You, OK, so what message was she sending? to her constituents, uh, the base of the Democratic Party. We're not going to get the vaccine. Well, that flipped, okay, uh, when Biden became president. And now uh, it's the Republicans, uh, for the most part, or the socially conservative people uh, who don't want to get this thing. So I think that's really what has changed since that time. But I think all three of us agree that, you know, everybody should get the vaccine if, uh, if their doctor uh, approves it for them. <coughs> Their, their health history. Uh, Congressman, I wanted to turn to um, a couple of other things uh, regarding the Republican Party. Um, can you tell me why uh, the Republican Party spends so much time uh, fighting the last election, convinced that the election was stolen? Uh, I don't know how long this audit in Arizona has been going on. Uh, we got uh, senator here in Pennsylvania trying to audit uh, three or four counties. Why is so much time spent on this lost cause? Well, um, I am a big proponent of looking forward um, and to address the concerns that, you know, many people have. And some of them 
uh, JD, I have myself with regard to people having faith and trust in the elections when it comes to, um, you know, voter ID, when it comes to signature matching, when it comes to uh, pre-canvassing, when it comes to deadline of receipt. Um, I think those are really important things because the reality of the situation is whether you agree or disagree with the people that feel this way is that there's still at this moment a significant block of people in our community and across the country that still don't fully trust the voting system. So I think we, what we need to do is enact reforms that will uh, reinstill that faith and confidence because we can't live in a country or in a community or anywhere where people question outcomes of elections. It's so unhealthy. It's so destructive. Uh, and it's very dangerous, quite frankly. Um, now, the, you know, Bucks County, the, the election that was held here, Phil and JD was done very, very well. Um, you know, Matt Weintraub, any complaints that he's gotten, he's he's followed through with. Uh, he hasn't found anything. Um, you know, any of the election officials, I think they did a good job here in Bucks County. You know, yeah. we can't speak to other jurisdictions. We don't know what's going on there. But I can tell you right here in our own backyard, our election officials did an outstanding job. And the election was fair and it was legitimate. And um, the outcome was what it was. Now, can we uh, fix things like signature matching? JD, I got to tell you, uh, when the Secretary of State came out with that, that ruling that signatures don't have to match, whether or not that results in substantive fraud, and that's a whole separate conversation, if it undermines people's confidence, that is a problem in and of itself that needs to be addressed, right? Because the average Joe on the street doesn't understand when you say signatures don't have to match. They're like, why? Why is that the case? Um, I thought that was a terrible decision because it undermined people's confidence. It kind of added fuel to that fire that a lot of people were trying to advance. Uh, many people were trying to say don't trust the election long before it. And it's just so damaging and destructive to our country. And um, so what I hope, uh, J.D. and Phil, that we can do is come together on areas where we can agree what can we fix about our voting system. Can we have some free form of ID um, so that you know people are confident that the 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 votes that are being cast are being cast by uh, the eligible voter that's casting it? Can we have signatures matched? Can we agree that you know, with the exception of our, our military personnel, that ballots have to be received by 8 p.m. on election night? Um, these are th common sense things that I think if we can just get that across the finish line, people will just have a lot more confidence, and our community and our country would be better because of it. Brian, yeah, let me. Let, let me let me suppose this scenario for you. Um, so you make great points. If all that you just mentioned is enacted, and let's suppose Donald Trump is your candidate next time, and let's suppose Donald Trump loses, do you believe his supporters are going to say, well, <clears throat> he did all these things to make sure it was a fair election. I guess he lost legitimately. Well, some of them won't, right, Phil? I mean, any you know of them won't, Brian. You're, you're right, Phil, but go. how many times have you seen, uh, going back to 2000 and the hanging chads, uh, the 2016 election, the 2020 election, where you have a group of people out there that say, not my president, right? That's terrible. Yeah. Um, and it's occurred across the board. Um, you know, people are blaming different things for the outcome of the election other than the voters choosing who they did, right? Uh, I don't think that's ever good. Um, anyone who's elected president of the United States is my president. And anybody that I'm around that, you know, just because the person they didn't vote for becomes president and they say not my president, I call them out on it. I say, yes, it is your president. Uh, they were elected. Uh, and it's just an unhealthy dialogue. And I think we're, it begets more division the more people do that. And um, I think all responsible leaders, regardless of where, what you're leading, uh, have to call that out. And I certainly will. 
Yeah, Phil, the, the idea that uh, there's voter fraud and the wrong guys in the White House is not new. Selected, not elected. Remember that that bumper <laughs> sticker? Where did I hear that? Yeah. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, why are so many members of your party um, and Republicans and conservatives, uh, both in the media and again within your party, so dismissive of what happened? <clears throat> On January sixth at the at the Capitol, I mean, why? Why? I, I just you know, what was it? Uh, this guy from Georgia, the congressman from Georgia, you may know him, Andrew Clyde, I think his name is, was actually uh, saying on Capitol Hill that uh, well, what he saw, what I saw, was just people walking through Statuary Hall as if they were tourists, you know, uh, as if none of the other uh, deeply troubling. Uh, disturbing images uh, were available to him. Why are so many so dismissive of that? Oh, Portland, oh, Minneapolis, you know, not that I'm saying they're right, but uh, why? Yeah, well, one of the unfortunate realities that we're seeing now, JD, and it breaks my heart, uh, and it's, across, it's occurring in a number of areas, is everybody is viewing things through a purely partisan lens. Uh, whose team is advancing this cause and whose team is opposing it? And it's terrible. You know, we got to get back to right and wrong, uh, not, you know, which party is supporting which concept or which legislation, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, and just be honest and be consistent. Uh, I was on the floor of the House, um, J.D., when all that went down. It was horrifying. It was frightening. Uh, and it was it was an embarrassment uh, to our country what happened that day. Um, that was an insurrection. There's no question about it. It was an attempted one. Um, and we need to speak clearly about that. Um, and I, the, the words that I spoke um, immediately after that event that I put out, um, the statements I put out, I, I repeat today that anybody that entered that Capitol on that day uh, uh, blowing past police officers uh, is a criminal that ought to be arrested. And I hope they all are. I really do. Um, you know, that's just the way I feel about it. And, you know, why are some people dismissive of it? I can't answer that question, J.D. You'd have to ask them. Um, they're, not they're not living in reality. That's all I know. Yeah, do your colleagues, your Democratic colleagues, I know you work across the aisle, do they say anything about Portland and Minneapolis? Because that, you know, they attacked the federal courthouse in Portland. They, I'm not sure they burned it down, but they tried to. Would that be insurrectionist activity by the left? Uh, and is it a fair question? And, and what do your Democratic colleagues say about that when it's put to them? You know, is it the same thing or why are they dismissive of, of what happened? It's legitimate uh, political protest. What do they say? Yeah, well, it depends on who you ask. Um, you know, it's not a question that I pose to them, you know, because J.D., as you know, I'm one of my jobs, and I, and I believe this to the core of my being, is to build bridges. Uh, everything we do, we have a choice. We can build a bridge or we can drive a wedge. Um, I feel it's my job for, you know, however long I'm doing this for, to be a bridge builder. Uh, I believe in being a bridge builder. What's required is you have to be intellectually honest and intellectually consistent. So if you're going to have any credibility to call out bad acts on the left, you have to have the courage to call bad acts out on the right. Uh, and if you're going to get into rationalization or uh, justifying bad behavior by pointing out worse behavior, where does that end? Uh, it doesn't end in a good place. So what happened in these cities was outrageous. Um, but that's why I think it's important, J.D., that if we're going to be law and order individuals and I'm a career law enforcement agent, I'm all about law and order. You got to be able to call out everything that's wrong when you see it, no matter who does it, no, no matter what uh, party they're registered to. Uh, Phil, Brian, I I mean, to... The, the, yeah. the uh, 
the night of the the day of the insurrection, uh, the former president did he he did <clears throat> he could to stoke his supporters, and did almost nothing to stop it. That night, you tweeted, and I'm going to quote you: "What happened today was nothing short of a coup attempt." The president has been lying to his supporters with false information and false expectations. He lit the flame of incitement and owns responsibility for this. So essentially, you blamed him for the insurrection, but then you voted against impeachment. Explain. Yeah, it was a, it was uh, once again uh, 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 articles that were written uh, with no input whatsoever, uh, including from me. Um, single party solution that I always oppose. If you know that's advanced. So what I did, uh, Phil, uh, word for word, took the, the articles of impeachment word for word and changed the title from impeachment to censure, because that would have been the more unifying approach. Number one, because it would have passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, and second, it wouldn't have you know resulted in what we saw, which was a second acquittal. So my question back to you, Phil, is what did our country accomplish by going down that path, by le leading with emotion rather than logic? Right. If, if, if our goal here, I think the goal here, Phil, back to being a bridge builder versus a wedge driver. If when you impeach somebody, you are voting to over in, in Congress, you're voting to overturn the results of an election. Right. I don't know. I don't think so. You are, Phil. No, because you're not. No, Brian, no, you're not. It's, it's not as though this came out of nowhere. He brought this upon himself by inciting that insurrection. It's not as though someone went in and said, you know, what? we're just tired of you. It's time for you to go. Bill, when you vote to impeach, you're presumably voting to remove, right, which which occurs in the Senate, which means you are overturning the results of an election. That's what you're doing. Uh, just like I didn't vote to do that for President Biden, I voted to certify the election, uh, even though many in my party did not. Um, I don't believe in overturning the results of an election, you know, certainly uh, not with the, the, the objection situation. Um, but with impeachment, Phil, the more unifying approach, which, by the way, I think in retrospect, Phil, I don't know if you agree, but if a censure would have passed with overwhelming bipartisan support and it ended there, would that not have been a more unifying approach to take and a better outcome than what actually transpired? Brian, how much support what did you think there'd be for censure? A lot. A lot. Yeah, and Phil, I, I wanted to ask you, um, do you equate uh, all the damage, and I forget how many billions uh, it cost uh, in it, last summer when the the protests were happening nightly in Portland and Seattle, and we saw them here in Philadelphia and cities really across the country, New York City. Uh, do you equate any of that damage, burning down businesses, uh, shooting people, going after cops, defunding the police? I mean, is that is that any way equivalent to what happened on January 6th? I, I don't, I don't, you know, what happened in the streets of this country was awful. I don't think you can draw a parallel to that okay. and to the insurrection. Um, you know, Brian, one more thing about, about this, you know, have you ever spoken to uh, your colleague, uh, Mo Brooks about why he wore body armor that day? No, I don't really communicate with him. Okay. Yeah, just found that interesting that uh, not only did he wear body armor, he he slept on the floor of his office instead of going home as though he knew something was going to happen. Yeah, and, and it, it goes to this uh, dismissiveness that uh, the Republicans have uh, and the base of the party seems to, to have about what happened on January 6th. 
Uh, look, I, I think that what happened uh, last summer, burning cities and, and ruining people's businesses and the killings and the murders are awful. Uh, but I think the symbolism of attacking the U.S. Capitol uh, really puts it front and center. And I think the uh, January 6 hearings are, are really just, uh, in my opinion, the impeachment of Trump 3.0. Uh, Brian, uh, one last thing. Um, just wanted to ask you an open question. What's happening in the district? Are you bringing home the bacon, as Harry Fox uh, used to ask? <laughs> well, we're trying to with our, our uh, bipartisan infrastructure proposal. Um, and again, an issue of mass uh, miscommunication, uh, depending on the news outlet you're watching. but. Uh, we have a, a bill that, you know, my bipartisan problem solvers caucus that I lead uh, helped craft. It got uh, 69, actually what would have been 70 votes. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, who supported it, was not able to vote due to COVID. But 69 votes in the Senate. Uh, in this climate, uh, in this environment, uh, that's very, very hard to get. Uh, and when you have a bill uh, that uh, invests in infrastructure in a responsible amount, it's $550 billion in new money, completely paid for, half of it, paid for according to the CBO score, but there's a lot of things that are legitimate paid for is that the CBO does not score. Uh, one prime example, uh, uh, unemployment insurance money that was sent from the feds to the states that were rejected by a lot of these states' governors uh, because they thought that it was hurting um, their, their uh, businesses from getting their employees back. That's about $53 billion, um, JD and Phil, uh, that we're going to recapture. CBO doesn't score that, but that's a very legitimate paid for. So no tax increases, an historic investment uh, in our nation's infrastructure, and both the AFL-CIO, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the Business Roundtable all support it. When do you ever see that? Uh, and yet I have, there, there are extremists on both sides that are attacking this bill for all the wrong reasons. So hopefully that's something we can bring back, J.D. Uh, what would we see be physically, uh, Brian? What, what kinds of projects would we see uh, in the first district? Well, it's going to be, you know, shoring up our roadways, obviously, you know, um, you know, state routes like 611, I-95, you know, on the federal side, uh, the, the, the turnpikes, but the bridges are probably the, should be the area of all of our biggest concern, uh, JD. Um, NPR did a study recently that roughly accounted for 35 or so percent of the bridges across this country is structurally deficient. And that's not something you want to wait for something bad to happen. Um, that takes a lot of money. Um, we should be investing at least the same percent of our GDP in infrastructure as communist China is. Uh, and they're laughing at us for not putting the same investment in our, our infrastructure as they are theirs. And China is by far the biggest existential threat facing the United States and the world. So I think infrastructure, if done wisely, is the best investment our country can make, especially if we utilize public-private partnerships. So a wise infrastructure dollar spent will yield two, three, four dollars in private investment. A poor infrastructure dollar spent will yield 20 cents on the dollar in private investment. So the expansion of, of the Salt Lake City Airport, for example, Delta uh, ma ma manifestly benefited from that. They invested significantly and bucked up for that. Um, uh, when we're building out our broadband, companies like Netflix and Comcast will benefit. They should have some skin in the game. When we're building out charging stations, Tesla will benefit. They should have some skin in the game. So if we invest the right way where we attract private money, to come in, it exponentially expands the reach of the federal taxpayer dollar. It rebuilds our infrastructure. It's a jobs program because you need people to build these jobs, not robots. Um, they, they will be generating tax revenue that'll help pay for this bill. Uh, it's an economic uh, issue. It's a, it's a national security issue when it comes to IT infrastructure and the electrical grid. And it's a public safety issue when it comes to our bridges and dams 
Um, and it's an environmental issue when it comes to our water infrastructure with the PFAS issues that we've been having uh, in Warminster and Warwick. So all that will be brought back, uh, J.D., to Bucks County. Yeah, it always, infrastructure spending, bridges, highways, that sort of thing always pays for itself. Just look at the interstate highway system. Congressman, thank you for being here today. And that's all we have for today. Uh, get our podcast wherever you get yours and read our content and our columns online at buckscountycouriertimes.com, theintel.com, and burlingtoncountytimes.com. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe online? It doesn't cost that much, and you're supporting a lot of great journalists and a lot of great local journalism. You get a lot for your buck. I'm JD. I'm Phil. For all of us here in the newsrooms, thanks for watching, thanks for listening, but especially thanks for reading. Adios. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.